Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Justin McElroy. And today we are going to talk about medicine and the way it impacts us. I'm is this, thinking how is this new a new thing you're doing? I don't, I don't. You didn't know. You have to workshop this stuff with me ahead of welcome time. You to can't just, welcome to Health Watch. No, no, we're not changing the name. And that would be a whole other Welcome podcast. to Healthline. No. No. Sydney, tell everybody what we're going to talk about because I left my special blue blocking sunglasses and I'm a flower that can't look at a screen for a half hour while we record this podcast without my special glasses. Oh, so tell yeah. them what we're talking about. For all us uh, medical professionals out there who have to stare at a screen to do an EMR all day, we are short on sympathy. So, Justin, the first thing I want to get out of the way before we start the show. I'm back. What did I miss? Nothing. Take it from the top. Is Surgeon's General. Sturgeon General. Not Surgeon Generals. Surgeons General. I believe that is accurate. What if we all just as a society <laughs> got together and said Surgeon Generals sounds better and we should just do that? Well, I think I'm I'm basing that off of I, I don't hear that corrected as much as attorneys general. Yes. I, that one Which I tells hear. you something about the landscape we've been living in for the past few years, eh? <laughs> I also think, and this is uh, this is me, a doctor, making a joke. So please, before lawyers attack me, I also think it just speaks to the fact that doctors just go whatever, I don't know, and move on. And attorneys are much more likely to be. I'm sorry, excuse me. I this was aimed at Riley, <laughs> budding attorney Riley, who would definitely correct me and say, "I think you mean attorneys general, not attorney generals." Sydney? This one started, uh, I, I think I was probably at the root of this one because I realized that we had a new administration that actually made it fun to look at politics again without <laughs> having to shield your eyes or uh, look at it through some sort of like shadow creating box like you'd use in an eclipse. I don't know. I It's still, I wouldn't say fun, but at least I can engage with it to see what's happening to take a critical eye to things and see like, well, so, I don't yeah. like this. I do like this. I need to call about this. Okay, this seems good without just like being completely horrified by the whole thing, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, you can engage. It's something you can work with. This yes. is something I can work with. This I can help. This I can work with. There's lots of room for improvement. Don't get me wrong, but we can work with this. We can work with this. You wanted to know the history of yeah, Surgeons like, General. Why and, do we have one? What a, is it? Why do we have it? And just like about our current Surgeon General, like well, I'm, I don't have a ton of info about the person in the position currently. Okay, I, I thought you wanted to know the history of the thing yeah, of yeah, the position. Like, do I know them? 
is no, well, no, I mean, not personally. Okay, I don't think well, so. Well, I'll, I'll tell you her name by the end I'm of the show. I married you, so I you thought can, there was a chance I might know him. You can, <laughs> right now, there is an acting surgeon general because uh-huh. the Biden administration like, uh, has. <laughs> did they get the good doctor or Dr. House or one of those other acting doctors? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> George Clooney. <laughs> where's your Where's your rim shot there? <laughs> Anthony Edwards. Hold on. Is it that button? No. Oh, no. Which no, button is that? No, no. Don't that? do that, That button. was the reggae horn. No. Hold on. Wait, I got to- No, that was taint tanning. My Is that- No, that's my wife. Hold on. Um, okay, we have to right. move on. In the early days of the United States, it was hard to be a sailor. <laughs> it's tough to be a seaman. It's tough to be a sailor out there. Yeah, it was hard to be a sailor. Why, you may ask? Well, first of all, I mean, sea travel was rough back then for everybody, right? Right, like, right long you were out there a long time we already know you didn't have vitamin c we've talked we've talked a lot about uh scurvy so you already know that you know that the conditions were rough for sailors out there on the sea it's tough out there and they were busy the other thing is that sea travel was absolutely essential for the function of the newly minted united states of america that was the whole basic backbone of commerce, uh, the economy, it was all sea travel, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Right. To get stuff from first colony to colony and then state to state and the surrounding areas. So the sailors were busy. Their ability to do their job was vital not only to them as, you know, individual humans, but also to the whole country relied on sailors. Sailors. Yes. Life, the lifeblood of America. So getting sick was a big deal. If if too many sailors, and especially when you think about like infectious diseases or nutritional deficiencies that if one person on a boat might have, a lot of other people probably have too. You may have seen this in cruise ships recently, <laughs> this, this phenomenon play out. Uh-huh. Or if they're all eating the same thing, they're probably all deficient in the same thing. Because of that, they were at greater risk for illness. They went, you know, from port to port exposing themselves to different things, different diseases. You know, they, it was easy to transmit infectious diseases that way. And like I said, just the general inadequate nutrition, less than ideal living situations, it was all hard. And when they would get sick and when a whole ship of people would get sick, it was a big deal for the economy. Right. So when a seaman or a sea woman, although at the time a lot of people were seamen, I guess we could say they're sea people, well, that, that is sounds that like acceptable. Mur- sea people. That's like right on the verge of mer people. <laughs> like you're right there. A lot of these, when you read these histories, whether you're reading like the history of of this on the Health and Human Services website or whatever, like official government histories, they're just called seamen over and over again. <laughs> See, we get. I it. like sailors. Sailors, sure. <laughs> so the hospitals, when they would get sick, that they had access to were really dependent on where they were, right? I mean, if you're thinking about what we're talking about right now is like the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s time period, okay? Are we past limes? Do we know how good limes are for everybody at this point? Uh, Not widely known. That helps me track it. And and like generally speaking, if you think about the situation with doctors, hospitals, medical care in general, um, the availability of that kind of help, I mean, we are right after the United States has become a country, okay? Like, right post-revolution. This is where we are, and how how good were the hospital systems probably? Not good? 
I mean, no, not um, a lot of them. No, not very. Not very good. And I mean, you might find some in some port cities that were better, that had more access to goods and services, that had more access to doctors, that had an actual doctor working there, maybe. Um, But then there were other places where the sailors might stop and be sick, where the hospital was essentially a hotel, and that was it. Hmm. So, as a result of this, what you you this would harm the whole economy. This would harm the whole financial structure of the United States. So, Congress decided this is a national issue. The health of these sailors is not just an issue for the sailors and their families and the you know the people that care about them. It's an issue for all of us because if they fall apart, we all fall apart, and we're just barely. We barely know what we're doing. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is still true. Yeah. That we barely. That's the U.S. for you. No, barely what know what we're doing. So they decided that we needed to establish a fund to build hospitals and um, get doctors for hospitals and other staff as well. First of all, the, it was really the focus was on like a doctor at all um, and, and like supplies and staff to care for these sailors throughout the United States, wherever they were, whatever port they had landed in and were unfortunately ill. Uh, So in 1798, they established the Marine Hospital Fund. This would create the Marine Hospital Service, which was sort of like, it was a very loose idea. It was like a collection of hospitals, an association of hospitals. Was it a government-run program or was it just like a, 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 I don't know what the word would be. It was, you know what, actually, it was most akin to sort of a health insurance program. Basically, the way the way that it worked is that a sailor was taxed 20 cents a month. And in return for this 20 cents a month, they had access to this association of hospitals. Okay. So it's yeah, all right. That makes sense. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And the idea was that this money would then be put back into these hospitals to, one, make sure that all the hospitals were hospitals and two get staff for them <laughs> hey wait a minute wait a minute this is just a mcdonald's with band-aids in it this is not a hospital this might predate mcdonald's i'm fuzzy on the history of mcdonald's but i think 1798 is before mcdonald's the you know what's interesting is so this marine hospital service do you know which department it was initially put under the purview what? Of which department it was initially put under the purview? What? The Treasury Department. Hmm. Odd choice. That is an odd choice. Less odd when you consider that there were only three departments at the time. Mm. So it was either Treasury, War, or State. Okay. Well, yeah. That's how, like, the Secret Service ends up in the Treasury Department. So I, I, at the time, you got to wonder, maybe it was just, we got a lot on our plate, we can't deal with this right now, but, like, why didn't anybody be like, maybe we should just create a new department, because this is going to be really weird. <laughs> but anyway, so it was put under the purview of the Treasury Department, you tax the sailors and you let them use all these hospitals and you take their money to make the hospitals like good, okay. right? This right. all makes sense. This all follows. But it quickly became kind of a mess. So the first thing is who got to hire or appoint or use the money to put a doctor in each hospital? Because at the time, like you might just have a doctor running the entire hospital. Hmm. Wow. Yes. Um, And then, of course, you would hire a lot of other staff. I mean, you would have to have nurses and orderlies and all kinds of other people. But you may just have the one. And there weren't a lot of doctors at this point either, by the way. And there were also a lot of people who said they were doctors who were— Just like the fake hospital. (laughs) Just sort of something. Uh, 
I don't know. They you saw need a somebody to run once. your fake hospitals, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's true. Well, and then you can get anybody. You don't want to waste a real doctor on a fake hospital. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We actually can't hire you here because you're an actual doctor. You need to apply to an actual hospital. Yeah. We're looking for a fake doctor. We know this is confusing, but we do have standards in our fake hospital. Where's the guy who just gives whiskey to everybody? That's who we're <laughs> looking for. We need that guy. So anyway, the the person responsible for this quickly became the customs officer at each port. So basically, at each port, when the ship would land, the customs officer was the person responsible for collecting the 20-cent tax from each sailor. This person was also responsible for, like, hiring the doctor to run their port city hospital, right? Right. You can imagine there are lots of places for money to get, we'll say, lost, in all of these exchanges. Uh, there's lots of opportunity for graft. There's lots of opportunity for some under-the-table arrangements and wink, wink. unsavory dealings. You know what I mean. Um, and so th- there, was lot, there was a lot of room for this money that is supposed to come from the sailors through the government to the hospitals to not make it to the places it should be, right? So the result of this is that in 1851... Congress decided to, like, send out, like, a committee to investigate the system and see how it's doing because they, I I imagine, had an inkling that it doesn't seem to be working great. And they looked into all these hospitals and found some issues. Like, this hospital seems like a hospital. There's a doctor there. They do medical care. This is not a hospital. Sir, this is a Wendy's. (laughs) Like, it was really that extent of, like, some of these places are really functional and seem to be doing well. Others are absolutely not up to standards. We have to fix this. This is not taking care of our sailors the way we wanted it to. You know, this is not living up to the promise of of what we created. And there's one thing we care about in America. It's taking care of our sailors. (laughs) Um, Well, you know how important, like, providing universal health care to all of our citizens has always been to us in this country. Not all our citizens, but definitely our sailors. (laughs) Uh, So if we – so basically they said, okay, well – Obviously, we don't have enough money to care for these sailors. This was the first thought. Well, there's not enough money. This 20-cent tax is not doing it. So um, maybe we need to care for fewer of them. Of the sailors. Of the sailors. So at first, they decided, like, well, let's just limit their hospital stays. So you can't stay in a hospital for longer than four months. I know that sounds like a wild, long amount of time now. Like, most people are not in the hospital that long now. Back then— recovering from things that was not we didn't know how to do it so it took longer (laughs) it took a long time that was not wild but they limited hospital stays to four months and then they also said also you can only seek treatment for acute illnesses not chronic conditions Mm. so or 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 maybe you would say a pre-existing condition oh man doesn't this sound like (laughs) like all the problems with health insurance they just sort of de novo we're creating (laughs) into the system without anybody to go, I feel like this will cause major problems down the road. So they put these things in place thinking like, well, maybe this will solve the problem. By 1870, it was clear, okay, this is not, this has not fixed anything. This didn't, this didn't address everything. Um, Now, I mean, this is great. We love that we're not providing care for people with chronic medical conditions. That, like, can I just say we all agree? That feels right, doesn't it? We all agree about that. That feels right. This feels very American to me. (laughs) Um, 
that's that's definitely something we got right. And we're kicking people out of hospitals before they're ready to go because we don't want to pay for them. This feels like that's something that America too. will we're value for that. a long time. Uh, but they decided instead, let's control it more tightly. We need to make it like a a tightly controlled federal organization that is run from the top that we have somebody like setting standards, making sure the money goes where the money's supposed to go, regulating the healthcare professionals at these facilities to make sure they're up to a certain standard and all this kind of stuff. Um, to pay for the whole thing, they initially raised the taxes on sailors from 20 to 40 cents. I know. God. It's your fault, sailors. We're going to take more of your money. Uh, and then they said, well, that's not enough. So then they started taxing like the tonnage of a ship like the load of the ship, they put a tax on that to help pay for it. And eventually they just started directly appropriating federal money. Like Congress just started appropriating money to put towards the system. And in addition to all this, they decided there needed to be a person appointed by the Secretary of the Treasury to run this thing. The um, Sailor Care Network. Yes, and uh, this marine hospital system. Okay. And in order to do that, we need... Uh, a, a like a doctor in charge, like a surgeon who could supervise. Supervising surgeon is what they initially said in 1870. We're going to have a supervising surgeon appointed by the Secretary of the Treasury who will run all this. That name would change to Supervising Surgeon General in 1875. And then finally, permanently by 1902, it was called Surgeon General. Is surgeon, is the general part in this name, does it mean have a military connotation, or does it mean like the gen, like a general? I don't know what's a general word. That, what what does general mean? Like like the surgeon in charge of everything. Yeah, like for all purposes, I guess. Would yeah. Be so there all is encompassing. The, Maybe that's what I'm looking for. There is definitely, and I'm going to get into this. There is definitely a military connection that happens at this point, but the surgeon general is not a general. Got it. Right. But it is in ref the word general in well, this context is used from a military perspective and not a I don't know, I don't believe so, because it was very clear from the beginning that the Surgeon General was not a military like not a general, as in the title, as in the office of general. Okay. But they were the general surgeon for the entire Marine hospital system, which would become other things that we're going to okay, get into. I guess but, Attorney General isn't like a military right. designation. No, it was that not but made me sound stupid. Now I'm Looking no. back on it, I feel like stupid for asking. But there it's is they definitely always have medals and bars and stuff. well, the, there is a military component to this, and that that is what I want to get into next. Even though they are not a general, there is a military part of it. But before I do that, let's yeah. go to the, let's go to the billing let's department. Go, let's go to the billing department. I don't deserve the money. I feel so stupid. <laughs> Maybe forty cents. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl. 
is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got at two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, And the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Judge John Hodgman. And I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Ten years ago, I came on Jordan Jesse Go and judged my first dispute. Is chili a soup? It's a stew, obviously. The judge has dispensed a decade of justice. He's the one person wise enough to answer the really important questions. Like, should you hire a mime to perform at your own funeral? After they cry, I want them to laugh. Do you really need a tank full of jellyfish in your den? They smell like living creatures decaying. (laughs) Only if they are decaying. Yeah, which they will be. Real people, real justice, real comedy. Winner of the Webby Award for Best Comedy Podcast. The Judge John Hodgman Podcast, every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. You're back on the line with Sydney and the Bozo. So what you're you're not the bozo. It is not a an off question because as you pointed out, the Surgeon General is uh, a a member of the military. I mean, they are an an officer, Mm -hmm. right? It is it it is a uniform service that they are in charge of. Um, One of the seven uniformed services in the United States, I believe. Space Force and the others. (laughs) I think of it. Oh, are there eight now? Just Space Force and seven. The is Space Force included? The okay, hold on. There's Army, Navy, Marines, uh-huh. Air Force, uh-huh. National Guard, uh-huh. Space Force. 
there's this force, the this U.S. Force. Public Health Service. The U.S. Public Health Service. Which has the, uh, which we are going to get into, but but which has the Commission Corps under it. And there's another one? You know what? You keep going. I'm going to okay. figure this you, out. You figure this out. Okay. We're forgetting something. Anyway, so what the this this sort of um turn towards more of a like military operation comes from really i think the first person appointed to be supervising surgeon and then you know what we would later call surgeon general uh and run the marine hospital service which was uh someone named Dr. John Maynard Woodward he had served as a uh, military surgeon in the civil war and so i think because that was his background and that was just the way that he kind of saw this that this should run. He took he took a very military fashion in the way that he like assumed the office and created what would come for it from it. He create he he really is credited with creating the Commission Corps, which would not only in his mind like let's take all the people who work in these hospitals. And initially it was doctors, but then as you'll see, this grows to include other healthcare professionals. Let's start with all these doctors who work in these hospitals. Let's put them in this uniformed service. And now now they're like, this is a greater calling, right? We can demand a higher degree of uniformity from them because that's kind of the whole thing with a branch of service. We can hold them to certain standards. We can standardize their training. And we can also give them this kind of greater purpose that they're serving. They're taking care of an aspect of American life and commerce and society that needs to be guarded closely in order for us to survive. It, by the way, the NOAA, the National uh, Oceanic and uh, ah. Atmospheric Administration, what, the weather, the weather core. Ah, well, I didn't know that. That's the other one. Uh, thank you. No, well, you know, what can you do? So anyway, so he did that, but he also, he said, you know what, this is great that they serve sailors, but I actually think that the creation of this core of healthcare professionals could be used to respond to other public health crises, not just to care for our sailors, but to do things like enforce quarantines. That was actually, as we move forward, that would become a big part of their initial job would be, there were so many infectious disease outbreaks all over the country. In, in our early history and like to kind of enforce quarantines different places and, and go where there are public health crises to serve the public health interests of the nation is how this new branch of service was was utilized, right? And so that he was the one who kind of transformed it from here are the doctors that take care of sailors to here is a whole core of healthcare professionals who can be used to promote and protect the public health, right? Right. The name would expand from that because of these changes to the Public Health and Marine Hospital Service um, in recognition of all this. And then from there, it would be called the U.S. Public Health Service with the Surgeon General at its head eventually, which is what it we still call it today, the U.S. Public Health Service. Um, uh, I have a treat. What? I have a brief treat that I just found in my wikipedia while I was trying to find that. If you uh, put, pop your headphones on real quick, uh, I have just a brief diversion into the – Public Health Service March, if you'd like to hear that. Oh. Oh, yes. It's got an official song. Nice. Lovely. I'm going to um, 
write some parody words to that probably at some point. So anyway, uh, the so the name would expand to that. And then um, FDR is actually, so it, it stays, the, the U.S. Public Health Service under the head of the Surgeon General would stay with the Treasury Department all the way up until FDR. And he was the one who was like, look, we've got all these different people involved in public health and some of them are over here over in the, under the Treasury and are being appointed by the Treasury Secretary. Like, none of this is making sense. We need to sort of reorganize. And so there was a lot of restructuring, reorganizing of the government under FDR with the New Deal anyway. Right. Um, it was initially moved to the Department of Health and Human Welfare. Well, it was moved somewhere else and then to the Department of Health and Human Welfare and then eventually to the Department of Health and Human Services where it exists today. Right. The Surgeon General would change from a position, um, like I said, initially appointed by the Treasury Secretary to a position that was appointed by the President and approved by Congress, same as it is today. And while who the Surgeon General reports directly to has changed a ton throughout different presidential administrations and different um the government gets restructured a lot i didn't yeah. realize this like these that's why it works so well i mean they're like not like the major three branches like that stays pretty much the same <laughs> but like a lot of these other pieces get restructured yeah it seems like we a closed ton. a lot of them for a little bit just like didn't do them for a bit and now we're kind of doing them again <laughs> oh yeah there was that one guy who wanted to close a bunch of departments but then he couldn't name any of them yeah. who was that who ran for president oh, man. I don't know. That's what happens when you lose. Yeah, that's what happens when you lose. Swept into the annals. Uh, into the, Rick. Right into the dustbin. Was named Rick? Anyway. Most of them are named Rick, I found. <laughs> Most of the people. No offense to any Ricks listening. We have to have good Ricks also. So, that's anyway. That's how we ferret out the bad Ricks. Currently, unless it changes again, the Surgeon General reports to the Assistant Secretary for Health, who is like the chief advisor to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Does that make sense as to where they fit into all of this? And like I said, this role evolved as the department did. And so they are now the vice admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. And they oversee the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps as a result, which is uh, six about 6,000 uniformed officers working in all different parts uh, throughout the federal government, and they protect, promote, and advance the health of our nation. And they're not just doctors anymore, of course. That changed over time. Initially, the idea was like they would just be doctors, but now it's people in all different areas of um, healthcare professionals can yeah. be part of part of the Commission Corps. What their um, role started to evolve into, in, in addition to being in charge of this, being this, this vice admiral, uh, is also to sort of inform and educate the general public about health issues, right? That slowly became part of their job. That wasn't initially the goal, but over time they thought, well, this is, I, I think it's when they started probably using like the nation's top, what do they say, top doctor or whatever. Mm -hmm. When they started using that sort of phrasing, which isn't like an official <laughs> title, it's just what they would call it. It also gave this sort of air of like, this is the person who you can all, this is all of your family doctors, right? This is all of your primary care physicians. This is the person you can listen to about everything and trust what they're saying. And their health messaging is the health messaging of the United States of America. Does that make sense? Yes. So they kind of became that person. I think much more so than like, if you think in recent years, 
you don't necessarily see like the Secretary of Health and Human Services as the number one person who's coming out and telling you about stuff as much as you see the Surgeon General being the one who's coming out and telling you about stuff, which is part of like core to that role is that they are a healthcare professional, usually a doctor, not always a doctor, but usually a doctor. Um, so you trust that they know something about I, I would I would argue that, I mean, this may just be a recency bias, but I would argue that even the role as sort of the public face of health in America has been greatly reduced. Like you, it just is not as much of a, it, it's compared to when I was a kid. Like just not as much of a public face as they as they used to be. Uh, you know, I think what's interesting is we, of course, have done an episode on Dr. Joycelyn Elders, who um, hero Absolute is a hero. Champion. Easy to say, my favorite Surgeon General. Gone, don't make gone me from choose. the position. Got fi- uh, uh, let go. Demanded her resignation much too soon. And, and it's very shameful, but I would say the most famous that people know, because, I mean, like, if, if you had to name a Surgeon General other other than Joycelyn Elders, could you? Well, yes, because we had this conversation while I was making and, chili yesterday. Well, and you proved my point, because who did you name? C. Everett Coop. That is really the only Surgeon General that a lot of, I've asked this question to a lot of people, and most people can only name that Surgeon General. A lot of people don't know who the Surgeon General is now, who, and and I mean, again, that's kind of a, kind of a tricky question because right now we have an acting surgeon general uh who is susan orsega uh who she is the third nurse to actually serve in this position um and she is the acting sg until uh the official nomination from the biden administration is approved by congress so um dr vivek murthy is who has been uh nominated Seems like an oversight, didn't I have you? Oh, didn't I have me? Um, he was also the Surgeon General under Obama, so I bet he has more experience. Being Surgeon General? Well, that's <laughs> cheating. I mean, well, yes. Well, and then, I mean, you really want somebody who has experience in public health as well. Yeah, but you're, this is a health show I don't, for the public. Well, but I don't have a master's in public health. Um, and I would, I'm not saying that, like, that is a... It is not that that is a qualification, but experience in public health is. If you did not grow up in the 80s, you probably don't remember C. Everett Coop. Um, C. Everett Coop was this impossibly craggy looking man who just had this very distinct just a beard. Yes, you no know mustache. That look, the mm-hmm. just a beard, no mustache. Mustache and if he just had the beard. Known it, for that. Yeah, looked like a cra- like a caricature of a craggy, which is appropriate for what we're talking about, I guess. A caricature of like a craggy old sea captain and he would just get on tv and be like listen smoking is so bad and he looks so old and possibly old and mean you're like okay i won't smoke because see Everett coop will catch you what do you remember the other distinct like distinctive thing about him other than the the just a beard there was one other fashion choice that became very he was known for he didn't have a pipe did he it's a bow tie bow tie no, he would right. not have had a pipe that would be quite, wild. He was quite anti-smoking. <laughs> Sydney and the dunce still coming on the air, still going strong. He and you know it's interesting because like what I would love because I do a podcast is from a narrative perspective. I would love it if C. Everett Coop represented a transition to a more like popular figure for the Surgeon General. And I don't necessarily think that stuck because I, I was looking through the Surgeon General's, Surgeon's General, and while I might recognize some of the names here and there, they really, he was the only one that really sort of permeated the common public knowledge um, yeah. to that extent, I feel like. 
But anyway, he was Dr. Charles Everett Coop or C. Everett Coop or Chick, I guess was the name a lot of people would call him. Not me because I don't know him that well. Um, he was uh, Reagan's Surgeon General. And he was a, did you know, he was a very controversial figure. Like smoking, I think, is the thing that most of us remember him for. We he were was very anti smoking. Yes, I'm, and I support that entirely. I'm also anti smoking. Um, please, please don't smoke. But he was a, he was a pediatric surgeon. Of, of much renown, performed, uh, like, one of the first successful separation of conjoined twins. Hmm. Wow. A very, very well, very well-known pediatric surgeon, very famous. But what made him so controversial is that when he was chosen, he was also known to be a, a very devout evangelical Christian and a figure in the anti-choice movement, hmm. a, strong advocate against abortion. And so when he was uh, appointed and approved, there were a lot of people in the, on the left who were very concerned about what this could mean, where now we have this person in the position of, as the, the nation's top doctor, so to speak, and they get to sort of tell us what they think about this. Right. Um, and it's interesting, I was reading into it prior to his appointment, he had made a helped make a film series with someone named Francis Schaeffer, who, if you study, or if you're part of, or if you study the evangelical movement, you know this name, who's a huge figure in the early evangelical movement, um, and had helped make this film series called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which talked a lot about, like, kind of tied abortion and infanticide and euthanasia all together. And when you hear sort of these, like, echoes of the culture of death and things, yeah, this is where that came from. This is, this is part, not the only part, but this is a part of that. So you can see why a lot of people who were pro-choice were very concerned about C. Everett Coop. Yeah. But what was interesting is that he was, as far as I can tell, he was very much about the science. I will speak out about the science because that is my role. I have my private beliefs, and he was. I, I mean, I, I think very privately he was very uh, anti-abortion. But he would not publish reports that lied about – there was a, apparently a lot of pressure on him to come out with statements about how physically dangerous the procedure was to people who were pregnant and that, that that we should ban the procedures because they're so dangerous. And he said, well, that's not true. Mm. And so he wouldn't say it. And then there, there, he was pressured to come out with a report about how uh, psychologically damaging it was. And he refused to do that because he didn't have the evidence to back up those claims. So it was very much about the evidence and separated that from like what his private beliefs on the issue were. Um, which I think it sounds like may have been a big disappointment <laughs> to <laughs> Reagan and the other conservatives who appointed him and kind of hoped like he'll do this for us and then we don't have to mess with it. And he, he never really fulfilled that for them. He said later that when the HIV epidemic uh, you know, started and became something that people began to be aware of, he was prohibited from speaking out about it for quite a while by the administration and eventually he would issue a report. He was allowed to issue a report about it. And what was notable about it is how explicitly he talked about how it could be transmitted, specific sexual behaviors that put you at risk, and how you could prevent that transmission by using things like condoms. He advocated for sex ed. He advocated for safe sex education, things that, again, <laughs> a lot of the people that he worked with would really have preferred he not say out loud. And he did advocate for those things. He actually used to have really long talks with Fauci about it. 
Because mm. the two of them, I mean, if you think about it, the same time period, you know, Fauci was over at the NIH. And the two of them would have big, long talks about how do we get the messaging out there. And he, he was very clear in saying, like, we can't, this is about helping people with a disease, not about demonizing them or othering them. Um, it's, it's really interesting to read more about how, like, based on his background, you would have assumed he would take different positions mm. on these issues than he did. Things used to work. I mean, things used to, you used to be able to trust that people mm. in, in certain positions in government would, would still have some sort of integrity, right, that would not bow to political pressure. And I'm not here to, like, I'm not going to throw a big C ever coup parade. It sounds like there's some pretty dark stuff in there. But, like, at least in the in, – they took the job seriously, right? And yes. when they're in that position – like they're taking it seriously and they're treating it with some modicum of respect. And that I feel like that's I sound like an old man, but I feel like it's well, fairly diminished. And I think it's fair to say that his his railing against big tobacco, well, against smoking, which then, you know, harmed big tobacco, was probably not a popular position. Affected though, I mean, I th- I feel like he legit got the ball rolling. There was a, I that was the first person I can remember as someone who's born in 1980, the first person I can remember telling me like i mean besides my parents but like one of the first really strong like this guy will come get me if i smoke he uh he he really it's it's an interesting figure i i was aware of c everett coop of course the thing i knew most about him was the smoking stuff i didn't know all this other all these other things um that he was involved in and it's it's interesting to read about because he is it's a he's like um a mixed bag because i think when you start to think about the reagan administration and everybody who was associated with it and their response to the HIV epidemic, I mean, it was abysmal. Yeah. It was terrible. They yeah. did nothing. They stayed silent, and a lot of people died. And there is no way to redeem that because it's irredeemable. Um, but it does sound like eventually he was part of, along with, as we talked about with Dr. Anthony Fauci, he was part of the voices that eventually – Later, later than they own, who had but his own change of for, heart. I mean, yes. who had his own change of heart, which we we covered, like, but called for something to be done. Um, again, not a justification because it was too late for so many people, but eventually was part of that voice. But it, but it's interesting to look at C. Everett Coop as like that is a position that could wield so much power with the American public if it is used <laughs> appropriately. And I don't know if that will happen, but um, and I'm I'm not necessarily saying. Considering it's we tough. didn't, I don't that. want politicians to be the ones making public health decisions because they did not go to school to do it. I want professionals who went to school to make these big decisions to be the ones making it. And certainly that could be the Surgeon General, but they are also a political figure. They are appointed by a president and approved by a Congress. Mm-hmm. They are not elected by us. Did you see Vivek Murthy is the one who's yes, you know, he is cop? the one. But I don't even know that if even if they were elected by us, they they shouldn't. That shouldn't be enough anyway, because who knows what we'll do? We're wild. We're the American public. I, I but it needs to be somebody with the credentials to know what they're doing before they speak out. And so like, you always hope that's the Surgeon General, but you can't guarantee that either. So it's tough. You know, it could be a really helpful, powerful figure in in making good health choices and encouraging people to make good public health decisions, um, or it couldn't. Kind of interesting to see how that position has evolved and how, if Murthy what gets, it could do. If Murthy gets confirmed, will you do another episode about Vivek Murthy just to get his whole story? Just to get yeah. him? Yeah. I mean, do you think I, Sure. Let's throw it to the people. 
Hey, people. I don't. I don't know much about Doctor Murth. I mean, I know he was. He was under. Obama, also the Surgeon General, but I don't, you know, I I really don't know that uh, other than C. Everett Koop and because we did the episode, Joycelyn Elders, I, I don't know much about the Surgeons General throughout history. I so I found myself Googling, like, interesting surgeon Surgeons General or a Surgeon General who did, like, famous, who was famous or was Good. weird or funny or anything. Like, give me something. And it's really hard. I think... I don't know. I'm sure there are books about each of these people somewhere, but as far as like one big collection of like, here's what you need to know about everybody who ever held this position, I don't know. It's also, especially like once, uh, just looking at like uh, pictures and imagery and stuff, especially once you get to like H.W. Uh, Bush, like the, it's it's a pretty diverse Eventually, of, it does get very diverse. It's a yes. very diverse, especially in like this kind of leadership position in the United States government. It's a, it's a pretty diverse list of people. I will say, despite that, I think it is worth noting um, because you probably, in what I've said, if you listen to the episode on Dr. Joycelyn Elders, you have already come to this conclusion. Dr. C. Everett Koop advocated for safe sex and sex ed in very much the same way that Dr. Joycelyn Elders did. Mm. And I think it is notable that. Clinton demanded Elders, Dr. Elders' regis- uh, resignation, and yep. Reagan never demanded Dr. Koop's resignation. Yeah. I think that that is uh, definitely worth noting. Just going to note it. I don't can't think of any differences between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Which is why Dr. Joycelyn Elders will forever be my favorite Surgeon General and uh, personal hero. And I have a painting of her hanging on the wall in my office now. Uh, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. Uh, we want to remind you we got a paperback book out. It's called The Sawbones Book, illustrations by Sydney Sibling Taylor and words by us, new content that deals with the pandemic and stuff. It's good and you can buy it in stores. My brothers and I also wrote a book about how to podcast called Everybody Has a Podcast Except You. Got a chapter by Sydney and uh, uh, it's very good. It's a good chapter. Probably the best one in the whole book. Thanks. Um, let's see what else is going on. Uh, we've got, uh, more merchandise in the store. If you want to check out, go to macroymerch.com and, uh, that's going to do it for this week. Oh, thanks to taxpayers for the use of their cell medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for listening. That's going to do it for us this week on Sawbones. Be sure to join us again next time. Until then, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported. Hey, it's Jesse. What you're about to hear is real. Hey, this is Chris. Hi, Chris. It's Jesse calling from Maximum Fun. Hey, Jesse. I heard that you got into a car accident. Yeah, I was listening to Stop Podcasting Yourself, and I just laughed so hard that I uh, slammed into a construction barrier. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> Do you remember what it was that was so funny? I will never forget, I'm sure. They started talking about Vegas and the, you know, if it happens here, it stays here, and that slogan. And then Graham was talking about, oh, you know, wasn't there some other slogan for another commercial? I was like a... Commercial for food, and it said, like, whatever's in there stays in there. I can't remember what it was, clams or something. <laughs>
<laughs> Clam? <laughs> Just so ridiculous. And man, I got lightheaded. I was laughing so hard. Next thing I know, <laughs> smash. So, yeah. They are they are just brilliantly funny. So I talked to Dave and Graham from Stop Podcasting Yourself. We would like to pay your car repair bill. Is that okay? That I mean, that would be super nice, Jesse. I really I, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> 